good evening good day hello everybody welcome to the latest live episode i think it's number 82 of the ask abhijit show and as you know today is a live video chat show which means i am going to be taking your questions on video chat face to face uh so i'm going to share the link for joining now uh let me share that right away and please uh make sure that you have a reasonably good stable internet connection because we will need to hear you and see you so i am sharing the link now let me pin it so that everybody gets to see that okay now the link and the message is pinned hopefully yeah there there you go so you should be able to uh, click on the link tap on the link through your device laptop phone whatever it is and join the video chat and <clears throat> the rule is very simple one question per person so that everybody gets the chance i want to give as many people as possible the chance to uh, interact ask questions etc so uh, let's uh, i look forward to some of you join i can see people joining wonderful that's great uh, yes i can see so i i think 10 people can join at a time so some of you may have to wait so <laughs> there you go and i can see people have already joined okay so whom shall we bring in i'm going to bring in people at random okay let's begin with whom shall we begin with let us begin with Ush. hello sir hello how are you doing sir uh, sir fine sir i am from dubai oh, where are you from sir dubai jharkhand Deobhar, very nice. Very nice to meet you, sir. Very nice to meet you. What's your question? Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, sir, my question is about military coup in India. That in every South Asian country and many African countries, there are military coups, regular military coups after their independence, so-called independence. Sir, then why in India no military coup has taken place since independence? Only one time emergency was declared. And uh, sir, uh, but India is also not as we call the so-called independence. so is there any role of the congress that congress has prevented india from military coup like anti coup measures sir like this okay so i'm going to take the question about the military coup because it's one question for a person so india is the kind of country where a military coup is not possible it's too large a country it's too diverse a country so there is this very interesting book called coup d'etat by edward luthwak let me try and share that on the so that people can see that uh just a minute uh let me share that so people can see that book and the book talks about the the mechanics etc of a queen so this book it's available on various online platforms it's called coup d'etat a practical handbook revised edition by edward luthwak it's a very old book actually it's uh, this is this seems to be a newer edition but it was written in the 20th century so that's what the book is about it's about how it's a practical handbook uh one second where are you yeah yes. it's a practical handbook on how to conduct how to uh, manufacture how to plan etc and execute a coup d'etat so it says that there are a number of conditions that need to be prevalent in a country for a coup d'etat to ever succeed and one of the conditions is that there needs to be 
I don't remember exactly what it is. There needs to be autocracy. There needs to be a large population that is disaffected. And there needs to be homogeneity and uniformity of the population. So in India, the population is so diverse. And there are so many different centers of power in India because of the federal structure and so on, that it is simply impossible to carry out a coup. You may carry out a coup in Delhi, but the rest of the country will just ignore it or, or oppose that. And they will not be able to succeed. That is the primary reason why a coup d'etat is simply not possible in a country like India. All right, sir. Thank you very much for your question. Thank you, sir. All right. Okay, let's bring in somebody else. Uh, who else do we have? Who else do we have? Let's bring in Aditya. Good evening, sir. Hi. How are you doing? I cannot hear you. Can I'm you speak, audible. please? Hello. Yes, now you're audible because you spoke. Okay. Yes, sir. What's your question? My question. We know that according to observer effect that particles are in the form of waves, but but waves, but we wave, but when we see them, their wave function become collapsed and they become particles. Do yes. you think that? They also have consciousness like us. Okay, it's about consciousness and particles. So there is one, there are these philosophical theories. Uh, there are let me uh, let me tell you about two philosophical theories. One is called panpsychism. The other one is called cosmopsychism. So according to these theories, which belong in the realm of philosophy, consciousness is something that permeates the universe. Uh, every uh, every rock, every plant every particle has some element of consciousness in it. So that is the theory of panpsychism. There is consciousness everywhere, but the level of consciousness is different. So uh, from what we know, human beings seem to have the highest consciousness. We need to be, we seem to be the most conscious of all species. Animals may have a, maybe a lower consciousness. Are they self-aware or not? There are these various uh, questions being raised by scientists, uh, etc. So we're not quite sure, but obviously if you interact with animals, it's clear that they have a consciousness. They are aware of themselves. They are aware of us. They seem to have emotions. At least the animals that we interact with, dogs, cats, horses, cattle, etc. Uh, and so on. So consciousness seems to be present in uh, living beings. Uh, are microbes, microorganisms conscious? They certainly seem to be aware of the need for self-preservation and all that in some way. So is there a limited form of consciousness, consciousness there? And is consciousness also present in non-living objects? So these are the questions that are kind of uh, the, the matter of debate in philosophy. In the realm of science, we still don't even have a definition of what consciousness is. So in science, we don't talk about consciousness because we don't have a definition. There is some talk in quantum physics, observer effect, etc. There is this theory called uh, the this uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics called the... Uh, von neumann wigner interpretation i think it is one of these interpretations in which they say consciousness is is central to the observer effect there are other interpretations that do not agree so it's it's all up in the air right now and then like i said there is this theory of cosmopsychism which says that the entire universe is a conscious entity there's a universe consciousness and we are part of that so these are theories that are around but in science in the, when we talk talking strictly about science we don't have answers yet so that's the kind of overall overview I can offer to you, sir. All right. Thank you. It's my dream to Thank you very much for your question.
Nice to meet you too. Nice to meet you. Bye. Okay. Let's uh, bring in some other friends of ours. Let's bring in Mr. Rohin. Good evening, sir. Hi, sir. How good are evening, you doing? Sir. Rohin, this time. I'm good. I'm good. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to be on nice your to show. Meet you. Nice to meet you, sir. So I've been watching your show from last lot of time. So I've been following you from last one year onwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Me. So my question is, I have seen you a lot of pod- podcast, and I again and again uh, heard of a lot of patterns in the history which you keep talking about, and also I've heard about the the genocides which were committed and which were being hidden. So now my just one question is there, considering the current constitution which we have, is it possible to reverse these things, or is it possible to reverse the demographic changes which have already happened over the past, for example, five hundred years or after the independence? Does our current constitution allow? for that and what is the future for us means in this coming 100 years is it possible to happen see demographic changes that you are mentioning that of course did happen our society was forcibly reengineered you know social engineering demographic reengineering that happened during the uh, past 1000 years of foreign occupation of india so what you are saying is true now the constitution of india is a foreign constitution it, it it imposes all kinds of limitations on our behavior on what sort of culture we can adopt what we cannot do and all that and clearly it's hindu phobic and all that now the question is about reengineering the demographics see yes reengineering demographics is something that would uh, if you if somebody would attempt to do such a thing it would take a long time i mean our demographics were reengineered over the past 1000 years we not going to reengineer them in the next 20 years or even 100 years it takes time so this is a project that we see first of all the thing is that everybody has i i truly believe that everybody has the right to practice whatever culture religion they want now the thing is today we are seeing attempts to still reengineer our society by having these forcible conversions induced conversions with money and all that so firstly that needs to stop everybody has the right to practice their religion whatever religion they want leave any religion they want but this should be voluntary it should not be induced by outside forces so that is one thing that needs to be taken care of and i think india is a large very large civilization the oldest civilization if you leave india alone for the next 200 years it will reconfigure itself naturally so what needs to happen is that these forces which are acting from outside and trying to, they are trying to actively reengineer our society right now that is what needs to stop if we stop that and if we stop all the propaganda then in the next 200 300 years india will find an equilibrium of its own india is a very large very ancient very mature civilization we don't need to as long as the outside forces are gone everything will reconfigure itself naturally organically over time so that's what needs to happen the constitution is extraordinarily harmful to our country to our culture if you look at the the constitution of of sri lanka for instance they it is recognized that buddhism is the paramount culture in sri lanka because it is the native culture there for instance i mean there are many other examples that one can give in india it is explicitly stated that we have to be secular and we have to essentially there are clauses of the constitution that are explicitly hindu phobic in nature and the policies of the, of the government are deeply hindu phobic our temples are controlled and they, all the wealth is stolen from and other uh, communities etc they are allowed to uh, 
do whatever they want in their places of worship without interference so there is selective interference in our places of worship so these problems exist the, and and you know what it all tells you it tells you that india is not a free country even today we have been right. independent supposedly for 75 years but that independence is the same as india has been independent for 75 years the same way that manmohan singh was prime minister for 10 years only in name so these things need to happen there are foreign forces very powerful forces that are still acting here we don't see them we don't realize it so india needs to become more powerful economically militarily maybe in the next 10 20 years then we can start taking control back from the outside forces so excellent question and i hope i answered it yeah sure thank you so much sir. thank you thank, thank you so much nice meeting you thank you bye bye, bye. all right i can see um who else who else do i see let us bring in let us bring in uh, naman good evening good evening good evening sir thank you sir thank you nice to meet you sir, sir. nice been, to meet you sir yes sir i have been following you since, since your video of changes khan sort of and i was very shocked to see your point of view and thank, thank you sir thank you so what my question is that india uh, the indian subcontinent has fragmented into many parts and mm -hmm. after independence in 19 in 1971 uh, when indian army helped bangladesh to get freedom from pakistan so why didn't it became to get separate country and why did we include bangladesh in our country is there any diplomatic reason and uh, yes yeah, yeah so what you are uh, stating is absolutely correct um, in 1971 when we freed the people of bengal of of uh, east bengal bangladesh from pakistani occupation and operation uh, that part of the subcontinent had been separated from india for like 23 or so years only just a couple of decades so i still don't have answers myself as to why we did not reintegrate bangladesh with india because as it, as it is today there are millions tens of millions of bangladeshis running around our country illegal immigrants and they are now all the documentation and everything so they they essentially are here to stay and this is a means of reengineering the internal demographics of india so so love the way you should say bangladesh bangladesh <laughs> thank you yeah so so india should have reintegrated bangladesh the the question is why did we not do it so that is something the congress leadership of that time can answer the, unfortunately they are no longer around one can only speculate as to why it was not done uh, maybe there was foreign interference india was a weak country at the time we were able to beat pakistan but we were not nothing compared to the two superpowers of the time the ussr and the us and they also want see the thing is that so many wars have happened in the 20th century around the world lots of conflicts are happening even today and to tell you the truth many of these or or most of these conflicts are engineered by various big powers in order to keep oh. the world churning and in order to maintain the relevance in the world so uh if india had reintegrated bangladesh it's uh, india's uh, territorial uh, extent would have grown india's power would have grown and i suspect that the superpowers did not want india to become too too big and too powerful so maybe they arm twisted india and and coerced india into not reintegrating bangladesh and keeping it uh, allowing it to become an independent country we don't have any evidence that corroborates this i can only speculate but yeah this this is something that uh, 
that needs to be looked at and maybe the the leadership of that time if somebody from that time is around they should answer it so good question sir thank you sir thank you thank you thank you nice meeting you bye All right. Let's bring in Mr. Divyansh. Good evening, sir. Hello. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Good evening. Nice to meet you. Hello. Nice to meet you. Uh, sir, my question is: uh, We, uh, I have been following your podcast and hearing the about forced conversion. So, sir, why these Abrahamic religions are so determined uh, for converting these polytheistic cultures? it is written in their holy texts it is the means by which they have always expanded if you look at the history of europe in the past 2000 years uh i think christianity is something that emerged in the middle east uh, the christian uh, cult it was a small uh, small fringe cult at the time and there was a it is alleged that there was a great deal of oppression of christianity then christianity spread across europe and it became the uh, official state religion of the roman empire byzantine empire under constantine the great and then there was this policy of spreading it by force so you can see that we the historians talk about the crusades but they don't talk about the northern crusades that happened in europe in which there was there were large scale massacres forced conversions induced conversions so if you look at the history of christianity and let me let me give you a, give, give a very good reference for that uh, just give me a second let me share my screen um all right just a second so i will give you a book reference let me share the screen what on earth is that okay let me do it again i think it's not been shared properly just give me a second so if you look at this book it is by uh, an author called Catherine Nixie the darkening age the christian destruction of the classical world it demonstrates it details uh, it it goes into great detail about how christianity as a religion as a, as a, as a as a political uh, force systematically destroyed the culture of rome of greece the various uh, indigenous indo-european cultures that were very similar to Uh, our vedic culture and so on so it goes into great detail in how this happened so it is part of the uh, of the framework of the abrahamic religions that you have to expand by force it's it's typically been by force and this is inherent to i i would say almost every abrahamic religion i think judaism doesn't do it judaism has a different sort of uh, practice it is more organic more localized but the other ones are this way so that is the reason why it is inherent in the structure of the abrahamic religions that they spread they are expansionist they are exclusivist and they spread by force this is very well known scholars have written tons and tons of articles and books about this there is nothing controversial about this so that's the reason why it, it is so all right sir thank you sir thank you thank you sir very thank you nice to meet you thank you bye all right let us bring in somebody else let us bring in rakshit hi hi sir thank you for the suggestion how are you doing sir. it was good uh, i'm oh wonderful really wonderful wonderful very nice oh, first thing to your viewers sir don't interrupt when sir is talking it's 
you know he is not able to answer and you are st- you are in the confusion altogether so let's let him speak first so my question is sir as we know in this uh, know the situation of ukraine what's happening there and uh, us will intervene if russia intervenes ukraine us have to intervene because west is not that powerful the western countries are not that powerful that powerful that they will be they will be able to stop russia so if us in, intervenes in the ukraine china will you know uh, intervene uh, taiwan and once they do that the next threat is us arunachal pradesh and every every you know far eastern part of india that will be the next threat so what should india do in that particular matter what should we do like should we intervene in so, intervene china so you raise a very in, interesting and important point so in india we talk about a two front war with china on one side and pakistan on the other, other side the west is facing a similar situation there is this big uh, russian pressure being applied in eastern europe in ukraine and simultaneously we have the chinese pressure in the straits of taiwan they are always threatening to invade taiwan and the, like you said that if the russians make a move here the chinese will most likely make a simultaneous move in taiwan and then the us will be faced with a dilemma of what do we do because if the us allows such a thing to happen they will immediately lose their superpower status whatever cloud they had and people will stop respecting them and fearing them so this is a big problem for the us now analysts would say that this is uh, not going to happen immediately uh, there is this uh, winter olympics that's going to happen in china the west is boycotting it diplomatically they're not sending the representatives and so on so the chinese are facing pressure because of their actions in essentially in the uh, in xinjiang whatever they're doing to the uyghur people nothing for tibet tibetans don't matter so the chinese are facing pressure because of their actions in xinjiang and they want this event to go off smoothly and that's why the russians are right now uh, coordinating with the chinese and pl- putting pressure on ukraine so that the west's attention is over there but like you said in the eventuality that there is an invasion either of ukraine or or taiwan then india will be in a dilemma because if the chinese take over let's forget about ukraine it's not important from our perspective but if the chinese take over taiwan it's then they're going to be free to take over the indian ocean if they succeed in that so what should india do now india should do whatever it can based on its current capabilities india is still not the, the match of china in the indian ocean in, the, in the, from the naval perspective or from certain other perspectives but india has a great uh, very good position when it comes to the himalayas and the near abroad in the indian ocean so if the political leadership is so willing then in case there is a chinese invasion of taiwan india should immediately secure nepal and sri lanka that's what india should do so because nepal and sri lanka have been under chinese influence for quite some time the chinese have been interfering uh, in the indian ocean they are creating this uh, what do they call it the string of pearls to encircle india and in the himalayas and and beyond that also they're trying to encircle india as well so if the chinese do such a thing india should immediately secure nepal and sri lanka if the political leadership is so willing and i think it should not be difficult to do that we have the capability and the wherewithal to do that so that's what i would say should happen but it all depends on the willingness of the political leadership of india yes sir uh, as you said that you know let's say china intervenes uh, the taiwan okay Pakistan is not in a condition that they can attack us they are not financially stable right now so we can attack china and it will be a two front war for china and they are not in 
China is a superpower in terms of economy, but they're not a superpower in terms of military. Can we do that? It do all that? depends on how much the other forces, other powers will cooperate with India. How much support do we get from the US, essentially, especially in the Indian Ocean, Indo-Pacific region? If they assist us, then we can do these things. Pakistan is not really a big problem. They will look out for themselves. The Chinese may do something. So it's a complicated issue. But if India gets the support, it's at least in the Indian Ocean region, Indo-Pacific region, then we can do these things. So it will depend on those factors as well. Okay. So just last thing, I wanted to have a, I have a small query. Does language help? Only one question any... per person, sir. Only one question just, per person. Just a simple query, sir. I have to be fair to everybody. Everybody gets one okay. question, sir. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right, Thank sir. You for this. Thank you so much for coming. Good, great question. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Mm, let's bring in Mr. Pranav. Well, hello. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Sir, I'm fine, sir. Have you been on this uh, show before? Yeah, yeah, sir. I've been on the first All right. one. Nice. nice to meet you again. Yes, sir. Uh, sir, my question is that uh, you have uh, released your video on your interaction with Dr. Neeraj Rai. It was yes. a very interesting one. So, sir, can you summarize the entire video and uh, tell the output of uh, that video? Okay, let me summarize the, the video. Essentially, what Dr. Neeraj Rai has demonstrated through uh, the interaction that I had with him and also through his papers, all his research, is that the Aryan-Dravidian divide is a myth. There is no such thing as an Aryan race and a Dravidian race. It is a lie. We are, from the genetic perspective, the same people throughout the Indian subcontinent. Yes, there are all kinds of different uh, genetic inputs, small minor inputs here and there. The Northeast has the, the uh, dimension of, uh, of uh, genetic input from the eastern part of Asia and so on. But overall, the Indian subcontinent is one genetic population and the, the entire Aryan Dravidian thing is a myth. The ancestral North Indian, ancestral South Indian categorization that has been created is also completely baseless. It is a lie. It has been uh, created by cherry picking data and only taking data that is convenient. So that essentially was the gist of the conversation. There are many other points that, that were discussed. I mean, uh, he also mentioned that India is the true cradle of civilization from the perspective of agriculture. The presence of agriculture is attested from the archaeological record in India to be the oldest in the known world. More than 10,000 years ago, we had rice cultivation and so many other things. So we discussed a whole lot of things, but the main a takeaway, I would say, is the complete destruction, the complete total demise of the Aryan invasion or migration theory and the myth of a, a separate Aryan race and Dravidian race. So that's how I can summarize it for you, sir. Thank you, sir. Sir, one small Thank suggestion. Uh, yes. Can you call this uh, author Vikram Sampath? He has done a lot of research work on uh, Veer Savarkar. So it will be very interesting for him to be in this uh, podcast show of yours. Vikram Sampath. Thank you for the suggestion. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Okay, who else is in here? Uh, let us bring in Mr. Who else do we have? I can see two people here. Dilip Reddy. Well, hello. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you doing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. sir, I want to know uh, who is the most powerful in India which can who can control 
and change the constitution. Okay, okay. So who is powerful enough in India today to who would be powerful enough to change the constitution? As of today, nobody. As of today, nobody is, is, is powerful enough to change the constitution. The constitution is deeply entrenched in the system. Recently, I mean, not recently, a few years ago, uh, the, the current government tried to amend the constitution and uh, create this. Uh, what was the amendment? It was the NJAC, Judicial Amendment, to make the judiciary more accountable. And the Indian Supreme Court immediately threw it out. Even though it was constitutionally done properly, it, the, the entire... Um, all the states were taken into the picture, into consideration, and it was done as per the correct process, this constitutional amendment, and yet the Supreme Court simply threw it out. It kind of tells you that the Supreme Court, in some way, even though it's an unelected, unaccountable body in India, which, which uh, is unaccountable and unelected, and still they seem to be, in some ways, more powerful than the elected government of India. They can just throw out an amendment because they don't like it. And they made some excuse. It's a, it goes against the so-called uh, uh, fundament, fundamental structure or core structure of the constitution or something, which, they, which is the term they have invented recently, it looks like. So they want to keep appointing judges themselves, themselves and that sort of thing. So as of today, as is demonstrated by this incident, even the Prime Minister of India and the entire elected uh, system of electoral system of India is not powerful enough to even make a small amendment that the judiciary doesn't like. So as of today, it is not possible for anybody in India to change the constitution. We are talking about something bigger. We are talking about the fact that we need to get rid of this foreign constitution and, and create a new one that is Indian in nature. And as of today, it is just a pipe dream. It may be remain a pipe dream for the next 10, 20 years also. So that is the situation we are living in. We are not really free. You see? So that's what I can tell you, sir. Gentlemen. Thank you for the question. All right. Thank you for the question. Bye-bye. Nice to meet you all. Okay. Let us bring in somebody else. Um... Uh, let us bring in uh, Mr. Rishabh Singh. Hello. Good evening. Can't hear you, sir. Can't hear you. You're muted. Namaste, sir. Namaste. Namaste. Nice to meet you. It's a great fan, sir. Great fan. Thank you so much. Thank sir, you. Uh, sir, my question is, uh, do the genetics disappear? For example, throughout our history, we see when an uh, invading force invades a country so does the genetic nature of that particular area or territory changes for example if you take the case of turkey when the turks colonized turkey does the does did they uh, change the entire genetic makeup of that territory because some people today claim that the modern turks are not the descendants of uh, the greeks that lived in the pre-turkic era era but are uh, the descendants of the invading uh, Turkic people. So what is your view on this? Yeah, that's a very good question. So let's take the example of Turkey. So what we know from history is that the present day country of Turkey, let's go to the map. Let me show the map so that it's clear to everyone. Uh, just give me a second. I will share the map on the screen. If it will open. Okay, where is the map? Here's the map of the world. Let's go to Turkey. 
so we know where india is let's go westwards towards turkey so this here is turkey this is the modern nation of turkey uh, the peninsular region is called anatolia historically it has been called anatolia so the turkic peoples they originated in eastern asia okay in north in the northern part of eastern asia north of mongolia and uh, siberia etc so that's the homeland original homeland of the turkic people now because of the sudden expansion of the mongol empire in the 13th century the turks fled from that and they went westwards uh, into present day kazakhstan present day eastern europe and then they went southwards and then that's how they entered the present day geographical region of turkey anatolia now anatolia was not empty at the time it was home to an indigenous population the i mean anatolia essentially is old greece if you look at the archaeological remains etc you find uh, in turkey in present day turkey you will find elements of greek architecture roman architecture all that so it was home to an indigenous greek population now what happened is that these conquering turks they were very small in number compared to the original population of greece what they did was they did genocide massacres all that and then they uh, took the women captive and had children with them so if you look at the original turkic people they look very different from today's citizens of turkey today's citizens so of they turkey they look like in nature correct correct you are right and today's citizens of turkey they look like europeans they look like the local greeks armenians georgians etc so they if you examine their genetics you may find turkic patrilineal lineages in them but the matrilineal lineages and overall genetics are local european anatolian greek georgian are uh, Uh, armenian bulgarian etc slavic perhaps to some extent mostly greek and uh, and caucasus caucasus region or uh, genetics so that's what happened so when a conquering population comes into a region like this uh, the genetic input is is very little for instance the turks uh, conquered india as well they were uh, ruling india for quite some time northern india mostly eventually other parts of india but if you look at the genetics of the indian muslims you will find almost no turkic or foreign contribution in that and that has been demonstrated multiple times through genetic research and uh, people talk about aryan invasion etc where where is the genetics for that we have all the same, same genetics aryans uh, north india south india and so on so the genetic in- input is very less especially in india and it, it proves there was no invasion first of all and in turkey again you find the majority of the genetics are local all right sir okay thank you sir thank you thank you great question thank you bye okay let us bring in somebody else i will need to see your faces gentlemen ladies if i want to bring you in i will need to see people's faces anyway let's bring in uh, mr arush hello hello sir hello sir good evening thank you namaste so sir, sir uh, my question was that uh, what are the problems in uh, today's pre- present uh, defense industry of india where new entrepreneurs can uh, contribute in because uh, if we go in uh, making weapons some even some new weapons it needs a lot of money so where can some entrepreneurs start what are the main problems in today's drdo and other defense industries of india uh let me answer the question about entrepreneurs drdo and defense industries are a whole different kettle of fish so let's say you are a new engineering graduate you have lots of ideas and you want to start um, 
artillery business, uh, a company that manufactures, let's say, artillery uh, weapons, you know, howitzers or, or whatever. So you want to do that. You know that you know the business. I mean, you know the uh, how to do it. You've studied engineering. You have the degree and all. The question is, even if you are motivated and all, all that, how will you find the funding? You need funding to create a business. You need funding to do R&D and create a better weapon, which needs a lot of testing, a lot of iteration. You create a, a certain prototype of a weapon. It may not perform to your expectations. Then you will try to improve it by creating a newer version. So all of this takes funding. You need manpower. You need to uh, hire uh, to hire employees. You need a building or buildings and so on. So you need funding. Who's going to provide the funding. An idea is not enough. So the question right now in India is how do people with great ideas and the and the capability to execute on those ideas, how do they get funding? So there is this uh, scheme of the government called Startup India. I have not looked into the details of how it works, but I think they are providing funding to uh, promising startups and all that. We also have venture capital and all, but in, in terms of venture capital, when you go into that, they will expect a big return on their investment and within a reasonable time frame. And certain industries like defense and all, the return on investment may take longer than what these people expect. So these are the problems. And also you have all the bureaucratic red tape. If you want to incorporate a company, you have to go through all these procedures, all the hoops that you have to jump through, and so on. So there are lots of problems. It's not very easy to do business in India. Uh, the ease of doing business rankings are certainly improving over the past uh, five, seven, seven years. But I think a lot more can be done. Of course, India is producing the most number of startups in the world right now. We have uh, leapfrogged China also in that. So clearly, the government is doing certain things right, maybe many things right. And yet there is a lot of room for improvement. So I would say the main problem that people face, youngsters face when they come out of engineering and whatever other thing they're coming out and they have ideas, the main problem is how do you get funding? There is no access to funding. You may have an idea, but without funding, you can't do it. So these are some of the problems that India is facing. So that's what I can say to you. So, so uh, do, do we need every, any extra kind of uh, experience for that? For what? Uh, for uh, making some new weapons, like uh, um, previous job in India. Need, if you want to, if you want to develop weapons, you need a solid background in engineering, structural engineering, the metallurgy, and, and lots of other things. You, you will also need to know ballistics and all kinds of other things. So you need a scientific engineering background to be able to do this, right? Okay. Thank you, sir. Can't believe that. Thank I you so here. much. Thank you so much. Pleasure to have you. Bye. <clears throat> All right. Okay, who has who else has been waiting? Let's bring in Mr. Samarth. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Namaskar from Bengaluru. Nice to meet you, sir. <laughs> so here's my question. Yes. I've been a nature lover since childhood, and I've noticed that environmentalism in the modern sense has had a lot of Marxist ideas, leftist ideas. Why is this so? Excellent question. Excellent question. So what you will see, if you look at the history of environmental activism, which all originates in the West. See, the thing is this. Environmental uh, activism originates in the West. The West has garnered, stolen the entire world's resources. And per capita, their, their carbon emissions, their consumption of energy, it is way, way ahead of what the rest of the world uses. 
right? The US uh, uh, consumption of electricity per capita must be like 25, 50 times the rest of the world per, per capita thing. So they are the biggest consumers and destroyers of the environment. And because of this, uh, they in recent times, it has become fashionable to indulge in environmental activism in which they typically blame India and China. So what they do is this. They consume things which are which they have manufactured in China. They don't want to manufacture it locally because it, it costs too much money. So they will outsource all the manufacturing to China and some other countries. So these countries like China in the past few decades have been manufacturing all the goods for the West. Now when you manufacture things, there is carbon emissions. There is an environmental footprint of what you do. So the West will have China manufacture this and other countries manufacture these things and then they will blame those countries for the carbon emissions and the pollution and all that. That's what they do. That's a hypocrisy. And then what you have seen in recent times in the, since the 1960s, 70s is that all these fake NGOs, not fake, but real NGOs have come up which tom-tom uh, the entire movement of, of, uh, of environmentalism. I can give an example of Greenpeace so what they do is they try to prevent progress of the de developing countries. They target the developing countries, but they don't really target the West. They will do some token protests and all that. So all of this has been co-opted by the uh, by by essentially by certain very powerful forces in the West to keep Eastern countries. Uh, developing countries uh, to keep pressurizing them. That's what it is. And like you said, the Marxists, the leftists, the, the so-called liberals, fake liberals, they've taken over the movements. Feminism has been hijacked. Uh, environmental has been, Environmentalism has been hijacked. And all of these are now using Marxist methodologies to essentially try to keep the East down. Because the West is highly developed. The East also wants to develop. Why should the people of the so-called third world also not have good living standards? But when you try to bring your living standards up, you're going to have to use environmental resources and do that. And the West doesn't want that. They want us to remain poor in poverty and always backward. So these are the reasons why they are using these Marxist methodologies and other frameworks in order to use environmentalism as a stick to beat the third world with. So that's what's happening. All right. Yeah, it's climate politics. Climate politics, correct. Thank you so much for the question. Nice to meet you. A big fan. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. All right. Let's see who else. Let us bring in Mr. Tamal. Hi, sir. Hello. Big fan of nice yours. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. My question was uh, at uh, before the arrival of East India Company. Okay, so we know that India was one of the most powerful countries in the world, right? But uh, before the arrival of East India Company, how come the Britishers was able to acquire more arms and ammunitions that they were able to come in a position to invade India? That is an excellent question. So what you had is that uh, for most of history, uh, India was the most, I would not say the most powerful country always, but the most industrially developed country and the largest economy in the on the whole planet. That, that is known, it, is, it is a known fact. India was the first industrialized civilization going back 5,000 years, which is also well known. I mean, you cannot deny it. 
and the first urban civilization but india was not always politically united and when you are not politically united you are not powerful because you have lots of competing factions or kingdoms within the subcontinent and they are competing against each other instead of competing against the foreigners so what happened is that india was not united when all the invasions happened in the past 1000 years now what happened also is that the west uh when the when the arabs when the when the turks conquered india parts of north india uh, they sent all kinds of uh, so called scholars and translators to india who went to our universities to our libraries took out all the interesting texts on metallurgy on science on astronomy on navigation on on pharmacology toxicology mathematics all these things whatever they find interesting whatever they found interesting whatever had military applications actually they took all that with them they translated it into arabic and so on persian arabic mostly and eventually all this was transmitted to the west so this new source of knowledge came into the west and the west was already christianized which is a political religion it is an imperial structure so they weaponized all this knowledge indians had been using this to develop a peaceful uh, uh highly evolved society culture civilization the westerners they used it in terms of weaponry so they weaponized this knowledge they found ways of navigating across the world they found ways see india was india was the home of the so called ceric steel the greatest the most advanced steel making industry in the world it is now called damascus steel because it was imported from india into damascus so so all of these industries ship making industry the steel making industry all of these secrets traveled to the west they weaponized everything and then they used it to invade the rest of the world so the invasions happened after all of this scientific knowledge made its way to the west the invasive mindset was always there but the new knowledge the new technologies it these all of this acted as a force multiplier and that's how they were able to expand worldwide and create the these empires and all do all these genocides so that's what happened it's a it's a long story and we it's it's not always clear because it's not taught to us so it starts with the invasions of india by the turks the the theft of indian knowledge technology all that first into the islamic world and from there to europe and the europeans were the best at weaponizing this and that's how they were able to eventually in the past 500 years develop the technologies to a higher extent and then conquer the world so that's how it happened thank you so much sir it was like nice meeting you nice meeting you too very nice meeting you thank you bye okay um whom shall we bring in ah i can see my dear old friend banu shall we bring in mr banu hello Good evening, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? So I'm fine. So first of all, I want to apologize, sir. In your previous, uh, uh, sir, I thought you were asking no, sure, that no, sure. joined uh, in uh, that day's podcast. So I'm extremely sorry for that. No issues, no issues. So, sir, my question is, sir, uh, can you tell me about Shambhaji Maharaj, sir? It's very less about him on internet. uh unfortunately i am not an authority on shambhaji maharaj i have not studied the maratha history of india to the extent that i would have liked to study it but what i can do for you is please wait for a couple of weeks i'm going to bring in an expert on maratha history and i'm going to ask all the questions 
that will give you the answers about all of this so the first podcast we'll do discussion conversation we'll do is going to be about the big picture perspective of maratha history the chronology and what happened in the contributions of the marathas and maybe i can also bring out the topic of shambhaji maharaj himself so i personally as of today have not studied it sufficiently i am not satisfied that i know enough so i am going to ask you to be a little patient wait for a couple of weeks and then you will have the answers on this channel all right sir okay Thank you very much. Nice meeting you again. All the best. Yes, sir. Glad to meet you again. Nice. Bye. Okay. Um, let us bring in Mr. Um, Mr. Abhishek. Hi, sir. Hello. Hello. Sir, uh... Uh, my question is, sir, uh, your views on the podcast with uh, Virendra Singh Rada on Prithviraj Chauhan. So, is he a good king? Like, what what do you conclude on that? Okay, very good question. So, uh, I have before the pod before I did the podcast with Mr. Virendra Singh Chauhan. I, as you know, I have expressed my views. What I what views I had about Mr. Prithviraj Chauhan that. he was a capable king and all that but he should not have allowed mr gori to escape with his life uh, he should have the duty of a king is to protect the country the people and the long term national interest and he failed in doing that now after i uh, had the conversation detailed conversation with with mr virendra singh rathor i got to understand that era much better i got to understand the life and career of prithviraj chauhan much better and what uh, virendra ji uh, brought out is that there was a battle even before the battles of tarain which was a few years before that the battle of the satluj in which prithviraj chauhan had defeated gori one more time and he had allowed him to once again uh, kind of spared him so um, and what mr virendra singh rathor also brought out is that most of prithviraj chauhan's enemies or adversaries outlived him despite prithviraj chauhan being such a great warrior and capable warrior so there clearly seems to be in my opinion a certain uh, lack of killer instinct he was too magnanimous too kind too generous to enemies right and when you talk about greatness how do you measure the greatness of a king or a queen or a ruler you measure the greatness of a king or a queen or a ruler by the by the um, the 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 scale of positive impact they had on their on their kingdom and on the people of their country right and what was their legacy so if you look at the outcome of prithviraj chauhan's rule he may have been a great person a very noble minded person and all that and a brave warrior but he ended up losing uh to the turks to to gori he presided over the destruction of his over the end of his dynasty essentially and the destruction of his kingdom and the massacres and genocide of his people the destruction of the temples and architecture everything so if you look at the legacy of prithviraj chauhan it is a legacy that is terribly negative unfortunately as a person he may have been a very nice person great person but his legacy is that of defeat and when a a king's legacy is defeat you cannot call him a great king unfortunately so my view uh, overall has not changed i am very thankful to virendra ji uh, one more podcast is coming up uh, in the future very interesting discussion but my overall big picture view of prithviraj chauhan has not changed i do not see him as a king who has a positive legacy 
I don't want to see a king, him as a king who safeguarded the long-term national interest of his kingdom. And therefore, I do not see him as a great king, unfortunately. Sadly. Right? So I, that, I hope I answered your question. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Okay, Mr. I is very impatient. Let's bring in Mr. I. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but I can't see you. <laughs> My system you is... Bring a bit... Okay, no issue, no issue. What's your question? Yeah, so, sir, I currently study in an IGCSE school. Okay. Okay, so I'm in eighth grade. So next year, which yeah. is my ninth, I have to choose my subjects. So I just wanted right. to ask you, should I choose subjects of my interest or subjects of less interest, but you know, they'll help me economically in my life in the long term. And I also wanted to know, you know so much about genetics, astrophysics and all that. Did you learn it out of your interests or did you um or are you generally educated in this? And no, you, I have learned. Yeah, yes. And if you did it out of interest, then how did you do it? So all of these subjects that uh, I have learned, such as genetics, it is it has never been part of my formal training, formal education. My education, formal education, is that of a theoretical physicist. Not a theoretical physicist, just a physicist, but um, I chose theoretical physics. But I, as you can, I suppose, see, I have a reasonable amount of knowledge in other fields as well, like you mentioned genetics. So I studied genetics out of my own interest. The thing I discovered is that if you have studied physics to a high level of uh, competence, then it gives you the, the tools that you need to understand other sciences as well. Right? Physics is the most fundamental science. If you know physics to a high level of competence, you will understand chemistry very easily. It won't take you much time to to uh, master chemistry if you if you choose if you choose to. Then again, biology comes very easy if you have already studied physics and Genetics is a sub-branch of biology and so on. And I've always been a very curious person and so on and so forth. That's why I have learned things. I have studied things out of my own interest over the years. So that's what I've done. Uh, so that's what I can answer. And as far as your choices are concerned, you have to, firstly, you have to succeed in life in the long run. Like I said, uh, a king's only duty is to ensure the long-term prosperity and national interest and security of his kingdom and his people. Similarly, as a person, your duty is to ensure your personal long-term prosperity and success. So that has to be paramount. I mean, let's say you are into, I'm just giving a hypothetical example. Let's say you are passionate about music and you want to become a guitarist, but is there a long-term career in that? You have to also think of that. So you have to be practical. You have to be pragmatic and life is long. You're a young guy. Life is very long. You can always follow your passions later on. So I would say ideally you should find a kind of synthesis between whatever subjects interest you and also the subjects that will give you a long, a prosperous, financially good career. If, if the two don't merge, then maybe you should uh, at least temporarily uh, go for a, a career that is going to give you success, financial success. And the thing is you should 
try different things for the first 10 20 years of your adult life you can try different professions based on whatever you've studied and eventually uh, the world will change enough for you to be able to make a good living out of whatever uh, your passions are as well because the world is changing the world is changing very fast so that's what i would say firstly always ensure that you play defense properly which means that ensure that you have a good career right so that should be the primary motivation a uh, pr- primary factor that uh, decides your choices of what kind of subjects you will take up going forward all right sir okay sir thank you nice meeting you thank you bye okay let's bring in somebody else i can see lots of people waiting in the wings let's bring in mr krishna hello uh good evening sir it's a huge honor for me to be here with you sir very nice to uh, meet you good evening namaste 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 uh so uh, i just want to ask you that there are so many speculations regarding uh, our rigveda and uh, our sanskrit as well so uh, i just want to know what is the true age with proper evidence what is the true age regarding uh, the, the vedas and our sanskrit and uh, what is the proper evidence that we have regarding uh, these two and uh, according to archaeological survey and recent studies sir very good question sir very good uh, so the thing is we don't have hard evidence that will uh, clearly delineate the exact era in which the rigveda was written so sanskrit is a different topic rigveda is a different topic obviously rig the rigveda was written in sanskrit which means that the sanskrit language existed before the rigveda was written so let's try and use the rigveda as a marker for a certain time period so how do we determine the the age of the rigveda that is the big mystery so if you look at the uh, mainstream historians who have been writing books for decades they will say that the aryans invaded india around 1500 bc and around 1200 bc they sat on the banks of the saraswati no 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 the saraswati is a myth sorry so uh, around 1200 bc or so they had settled down enough and destroyed the india and dravidians enough so that they could write the rigveda so that is the official narrative now if you examine the text of the rigveda you will find certain things it's you will find that it's a snapshot of a certain time period of indian society our ancestors when they lived in a certain time period you will see a snapshot of that time period and the society and the culture of that time in this text the rigveda and it also gives you geographical clues and things like that for instance it talks about a lot of rivers and among these rivers one name is mentioned more than all other names and that is the saraswati it talks about the great river saraswati more than any other river there are entire sections devoted to the uh, to extolling the greatness and the virtues of this great river and the way the river is mentioned is in a physical form a great massive river greater than all other rivers a loudly roaring river the mother of floods so these are physical depictions not mythological imaginary depictions so it is clearly mentioning a river a, a physical genuine river now all these decades historians said there is no such river kidhar hai bhai where is it it doesn't exist but today unfortunately geology and science and satellite images etc they have busted this myth if you go and look at the google earth images etc and you know where to look you will find an enormous paleo channel a dry river bed which runs from the himalayas down to the so called arabian sea today all right so you will see that there was once a massive river a far greater river than all other rivers that actually existed where it is supposed to have existed and where where the legends said it was so now 
it is proven beyond any doubt that the river Saraswati existed. And it has also been determined through scientific studies, geological studies, bioluminescence studies, etc. that this river dried out about 1500 BC, approximately, give or take a few centuries. And it was precipitated by a climate change event mostly. So about 6000 BC, what happened is that the Indian monsoon started declining monotonically, slowly, slowly, gradual decline over centuries, over thousands of years. And the decline eventually went to such an extent that the river dried out partially by 1500 BC. Now, the Rig Veda mentions a great massive river, the mother of floods. So it is clear that this text was written closer to when the river was in its prime than to when it dried out. And the river was last in its prime around 6000 BC. So I am not making the claim that it was written in 6000 BC, but I am certainly making the claim it was written closer to 6000 BC than to 1500 BC. So this was a, this was, this would indicate that the, the Rig Veda is about five to eight thousand years old, most likely, and that would make it the world's oldest known literature in human existence. So based on these uh, based on these data points, one can reach an educated guess as to when this text would have been written, but it is still impossible to pinpoint it accurately. But further research will be done by scientists, not by historians. Scientists are going to lead the research in the 21st century. And hopefully we'll be able to find better clues and find the actual time when it was done. So that's what I can offer you, sir. Sir, um, are there any uh, researches or studies going on right now regarding the subject, sir? I think right now the main research is being done by scientists, uh, by scientists from the IITs, from other institutes uh, in the in the field of geology, in the field of genetics, linguistics still nothing is happening but these fields all converge when you take a scientific approach and they give clues in multidisciplinary ways so some research is now happening in india i'm very glad to say that i have this uh, this podcast recently with dr neeraj rai who spoke about the genetic history of india deep genetic history of india and i will bring in more experts as well so you will get better information from them as well right thank you so much very nice to meet you sir thank you my pleasure thank you bye Okay, very interesting questions. Let us bring in some other people. Uh, Mr. Anish has been waiting for a while. Hello. Namaste, namaste. I cannot hear you, sir. Please unmute your mic. Sir, now it's coming. Yes, sir. I can hear you now. How are you doing, sir? Nice to meet you. Yes, sir. So I'm currently in class 12, sir, currently. Okay. And, sir, my question is, uh, sir, um, now the budget is going to be announced. Budget the, uh, this this year. Sir, uh, the two years of uh, the two years have been lost due to Corona. Um, so, what are your expectations? And so, where are you going to see the India's economy in long term? Means till twenty thirty, till twenty thirty five. What are your views that way? Right, very good question. So, like you rightly point out, the last two years have been wiped out from the Indian economy because of the pandemic. The entire world has seen the same phenomenon. And India's economy, for some time, it actually went backwards. There was a contraction in the economy in the GDP data. Now the economy is projected to grow for the next couple of years, 9%, 8%, something like that. I see, I am not an economist. There is one field that I cannot claim any kind of expertise in. So I don't know what sort of budget we should expect, but what I would like to see from a macro perspective over the next decade, I would like to say 10% plus growth 
year upon year in the Indian economy. That is imperative. It is non-negotiable. We need 10% plus growth every year for the next 20 years, actually. And the government needs to find ways of doing this. 8%, 9, 9% is okay, but we need 10% plus. That is mandatory if India has to become a great power and India has to raise the living standards to the to the to the to the level that the people deserve so this needs to happen over the next 20 years so uh i'm not sure how what specific concrete steps the government should take we should obviously look at things like making it easier to do business in india uh, encouraging startups further creating more infrastructure investing in infrastructure roads railways these things and uh, private uh, opening up the industries and all that privatizing things uh, which are currently in the government sector and all so many things can be done maybe i should call some economists to explain this in more detail but what needs to happen from a macro perspective is anyhow the government needs to find ways over the next 20 years to sustain 10 percent plus growth in the economy that is what this country needs right so do you, so you do you think that this government is uh, going in the right direction according to what I think of it. all the governments, yeah, good question. So of all the governments I have seen in my lifetime, this government gives me the most hope. I don't know what the media says. I don't know what other vloggers say. I do not uh, base my uh, understanding of things on the opinions of other people. I see the data and I base my understanding and opinions based on the data only. And based on all that, I can say this is the government that gives me the most hope of all the governments I've seen in my lifetime. So I am positive, right? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for the question. Very nice to meet you. <clears throat> All right. Okay, let us bring in Mr. Um, Mr. Uh, Skanda Prasad. Hello, sir. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Yeah, I'm from Mysore. Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my question is that uh, there's a speculation that uh, the government of India act that, uh, passed in 1935 has been trimmed down and it's been tweaked to give us the uh, constitution of India. So the thing is then what exactly was the contribution of Dr. Ambedkar and the other uh, members in the committee who you know made the constitution? Right. Good question. Very good question. So you uh, could you mute your mic? It's it's uh, echoing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So your question is a very good question. And you are right. The Indian constitution is essentially based on the 1935 act, which was passed by the British. No doubt about it. The fundamental framework is that of the 1935 act. And that was then built upon by the so-called constituent assembly. And then it, it was put out as the Indian constitution. Now, we should see what Dr. Ambedkar himself had to say about this. Right. So I am not uh, an expert in the life and times and work of Dr. Ambedkar. But if I recall correctly, he wanted a different constitution for India. I, I, if I recall correctly, he wanted a presidential system for India. He wanted a whole lot of other things for India, which have not been included in the Indian constitution. He was kind of made to rubber stamp the constitution that was still very much colored in, in nature. There is no doubt that he was a very learned man. And he, he could have drawn a constitution that would have been far better for all of us. It would have been very useful even today. Unfortunately, it looks like he was not allowed to do that. I 
would repeat that I am not an expert in the life and times and work of Dr. Ambedkar, but this is the sense that I have got thus far. Maybe I will bring in somebody who is an actual expert and who has studied this in far, far more detail and then we can bring that out also. But yes, I would yes, say that I would. Uh, I would say that he wanted a different kind of constitution for India. Right? Right. Thank you. Hopefully we have a dharmic constitution someday for our country. One hopes so. One hopes so. Yeah. Thank you. See you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. you. Bye. <clears throat> okay, let us bring in some other people. Uh, whom do I bring in? Let us bring in uh, Mr. Nityananda. Hello. Good evening. Good day. Good evening, sir. Namaste. Namaskar. My question was that our constitution is pathetic. I accept it. But is there a secondary constitution like we have the Arthashastra? But somehow, due to modern day technology, the Arthashastra, certain parts will not be applicable for now. So, is there any constitution which can be implemented in place of the constitution which is now there? Uh, yeah. Very good question. See, the Arthashastra essentially is a set of principles that can be extrapolated to any time period in Indian history or, or world history. Uh, the Arthashastra is not essentially, not actually a constitution per se. It is a set of principles, guidelines. It's a rule book on how to uh, how to conduct your statecraft, how to run an empire, a big economy, what kind of laws should you have, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a template for running essentially a subcontinent-sized country or empire or whatever it is. So uh, I would not say that the Arthashastra could substitute as a constitution. What we have to look back upon is how did our past rulers run the country, especially when the country was unified under a single uh, empire or ruler. We have the Mauryan era, we have the era of the Kanishka the Kushan, the great Kanishka, one of our greatest emperors. We have the Gupta era, we have uh, Lalita Ditya Muktapida, we have uh, the Cholas, the Marathas. So how did they run the country? And they run, ran the country without a written constitution, by the way. They did not need a written constitution to run the country. Right? And they were able to run the country brilliantly, far better than the way it is run today. And if you look at certain countries like the UK, they don't have a written constitution. They are also able to manage their affairs very well. So you don't necessarily need a written constitution. What you need is proper policies, proper governance mechanisms, and the right way of running the country, and a proper set of laws, codified set of laws. If you have that, you can run the country brilliantly. And what I would say is that whatever way it is done, it should be done, done according to the precepts of Indian culture and civilization in a dharmic way. That's it. That is what will take the country forward, nothing else. So that's what I would say. We don't really even need a written constitution. We can do without that. So, sir, right. in the Arthashastra, it is said that monarchy is the right form of government. So, do you agree with it, sir? Just sorry well, to ask I would. No, no. Okay, let's go for, go into that. Let's look at the last ten thousand years of human history, and let's look at all the successful cultures, civilizations, empires. What form of them? What form of government did they have? This democracy that has been imposed upon the world in the last hundred years or so, it is an experiment. 
it is not something that is proven to work i mean look at the experiments in democracy in various parts of the world what do you see happening there corruption disasters uh, and democracy has was born in india india is the birthplace of democracy but we already we always had a hybrid system we had democracy at the lower levels and an emperor at the higher level that's how it was done so people always had the power to make changes that were better best for them they had the uh, right to appoint officials locally and all that but at the top it was the, the there was the overall supervisory um, role of the emperor so it was always a, always a hybrid system so the arthashastra simply reflects that and i i see nothing contradictory to that in if you look at the record of human history the most successful form of government historically in the past 10000 years has never been the pure democracy the so called pure democracy we see today it's always been a monarchy system so so the, the history bears that out unfortunately or fortunately which, whichever way you see it right thank you sir we'll love to meet you nice to meet you thank you for the questions thank you bye all right mm. whom do we call in let me bring in uh, let's bring in mr kabir oops he's gone sorry it looks like he went off so let's bring in somebody else let's bring in mr yash let's bring in mr yash hello namaste sir namaste namaste nice to meet you thank you sir so my question is the artificial robot mentioned in radha bosh time it is true sir uh, i'm sorry I, did, i didn't get you please repeat that artificial robot in the radha bosh time i listen that it is true or okay the, the question is was there an artificial robot in raja bhoj's time yes sir uh, well i i have not come across this piece of information so i don't know about it unfortunately i have never i have never come across this uh, this uh, this claim or this record of any robot existing at that time so unfortunately i don't know i don't know sorry yes, you know please make the video for i will look into it certainly all right thank you so much nice to meet you thank you thank sir you. bye thank you thank you bye okay let us bring in um, let us bring in mr prakhar hello can't hear you sir you muted could you please unmute the mic uh, namaste 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 am i audible now yes you are yeah so first of all truly grateful for the opportunity uh, uh and i wanted to ask uh, like uh, we know that uh, moguls did horrific things like uh, genocides and worst of the things but uh, still like uh, they conquered uh, the kingdoms according to like uh, the correct way like uh, for example britishers divided and ruled uh, like uh, they were not morally correct uh, in uh, like moral morality is obviously subjective but still uh, what were uh, in in front of the principles like uh, uh, dharmic principle they were correct in some way like uh, they defeated the uh, previous king and took over the uh, nation uh, kingdom so 
so uh, what are the like things that are not uh, yet known in the common uh, mainstream that uh, mughals committed they were like uh, really uh, wrong for that sort of principally like uh, morally wrong principally wrong okay okay very good question i get it uh, so you're talking about the ethics and morality of warfare what is right in warfare what is wrong in warfare what did the mughals do right what did the british do wrong that sort of thing see in the 21st century or even the, we are currently in the so called kaliyuga age right so in the kaliyuga age kaliyuga the only morality of warfare is that you must win and the enemy must lose that is the only morality the only objective of warfare you go to war when you fail to achieve your political objectives through diplomatic means when you fail to object uh, to achieve your political objectives through diplomatic means then if you are strong enough if you have the ability the capability then you go to war then you try to achieve your objectives through military means and the objective of warfare is very simple the objective is to win doesn't matter how you win it there is no cheating there is no, no nothing no such thing in warfare and that is unfortunately something that our rulers at some point in time failed to grasp they tried to wage war in a in a moral ethical way and that's why they lost the the turks had no such compulsions or qualms they were happy to break the rules that the indians would not break and that's why the indians lost now the british had their own way of fighting war they they also indulged in politics in in the divide and rule divide and conquer kind of policy so all of this is all valid in warfare the thing that is unethical is the way you treat the conquered people that is the most horrific thing these people have done and there is no real difference between what the turks did and what the british did even our kings and emperors used to wage war they used to fight among each, amongst each other it is known if you look at the expansion of the gupta empire it is it was done by conquering all the kingdoms in india all the way down south by by let's say samudra gupta but what samudra gupta would do is after he would defeat a certain king he would reinstate the king and keep him as a governor who would uh, send tribute to samudra gupta and the civilian population was never ever harmed no civilian was killed no civilian was abused or hurt nothing was destroyed there was no burning no looting no pillaging nothing and these are the ethics that indians always had the turks and the europeans they broke all these ethics and that's just the way the world is today it is a terrible world you can see all the same things happening in the 21st century as well so to summarize i would say that from a realistic perspective from the chanakyan perspective you have to expect your enemy to be the worst form of barbarian you cannot expect the enemy to follow any rules you have to be prepared for all eventualities right so the only objective of warfare is to win and these guys knew that we unfortunately at that time we did not know that the marathas knew it the marathas knew how to win they were happy to cheat and de- deceive the the the, the, the turks and they were able to win so the marathas had a very different philosophy of warfare so it's very interesting all these things that you brought out but overall the only purpose of warfare is victory achieve it anyhow that's the way the world works whether we like it or not okay uh, thank you thank you for thank you for a great okay, question uh, nice to meet you all right let's bring in let's bring in mr nitin reddy nitin reddy hello hi sir Hi, Hi sir, how are you pleasure doing? Pleasure to have in this channel. 
Nice to meet you. Sir, my question is why Netaji called Gandhi as father of nation? Okay, good question. So why did Netaji make a certain statement? You know, the world doesn't work on the basis of talk in statements. You make certain statements for political purposes. There is a tactical reason for making statement A or statement B. When I say, if how do you, uh, how do you analyze or how do you study the, the, the career of a leader? What you do is you have to ignore their statements and look at their actions. Look at their actions. Were Netaji's actions in, in line with Gandhiji's philosophy? Mr. Mohandas Gandhi said, don't fight. Be non-violent. Be passive. Be reactive. Let the British do whatever they want but and let the, the other forces do whatever they want. But never fight back. Only protest non-violently through, through Satyagraha. Now let us look at Netaji's career and his actions. His career and his actions and his philosophy were the exact opposite of that. So he may have made a tactical statement while he was still a member of the Congress party to appease Mr. Gandhi because Mr. Gandhi was very powerful politically in the Congress party. So if from a political perspective, he may have made a statement here and there. Ignore the statements. Indians are, they have this great fetishization of words. Indians look at statements, words, words are so important. No. Words are not important. Only actions matter. Only actions matter. And if you look at the actions of Netaji Shabash Chandrabose, they are completely against the philosophy and, and the teachings of Mr. Gandhi. So I think that should tell you everything you need to know about Netaji Shabash Chandrabose. Right, sir? Yes, sir, one more thing is, how can I meet you? Only one question. Okay, how can you meet me physically? Well, someday we will meet if the gods make it possible, right? Right now, because of the restrictions and travel and all that, it is not feasible, but we can meet face to face like this, right? Okay, sir. All right, sir. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. And thank for the, thanks for the question. Thank you. All right, let's bring in some more people. I'll try and bring it bring in two, three more people today. Uh, who do we have? Uh, let's bring in Mr. Mr. Eshwari Shukla. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm just fine. Uh, actually, I'll jump into the question first. Uh, because of Marvel nowadays, everyone is, you know, uh, have something, uh, have some knowledge about the multiverse. And uh, I've read some things that, that contains a word like Hindu multiverse. Like there are 14 lokas in something and uh, that make up a Hindu. Do you have any knowledge regarding Hindu multiverse? Uh, I am primarily a scientist and then I am a historian. So I am not uh, an expert in deep, uh, in, in topics like what are the, the different lokas and all that. I am not an expert in this. So I think I would not be the right person to ask this question. You want to talk about the theory of the multiverse from the physics perspective? I can give you a two-hour lecture on that. Of course, it is no, not a physics no. perspective. It's a philosophical perspective. When you talk about the Hindu multiverse, it's a spiritual thing, philosophical and spiritual thing. So it is something that is not a scientific theory. It's a philosophical theory and a spiritual uh, worldview. Right? No, it's, really, so that's really, what it's, it's, it's actually, sorry to interrupt you, it's actually mentioned in the Hindu mythology. Now. That's why I, that's why I thought. 
that I can ask. Yes, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that it's uh, it's mentioned. There are all these different lokas that are mentioned, Pata yeah. loka and Swarga loka, and there are many other higher realms of existence and all that. But I am not a student of that. I have not been a student of that. I would love to study that if I find the time in this life. But unfortunately, okay. I have certain pursuits that I am mo- focusing more on right now. So I am not the expert in this. And if I would give you an answer from my personal perspective, it may actually be incorrect in some ways. Possibly, I, I don't know. So that's why yeah. I would not venture to may- give a comment about that. You know. So I hope oh, you understand. Yeah, big fan, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank, Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, let us bring in Mr. Raghav. Hello. Good evening. Hi. Uh, I, uh, I'm i in Gurgaon. My name is Raghav Tripathi. And I have a burning question regarding the history of the Harappans and uh mohenjodaros so uh, the people of uh, Har- uh, uh harappa uh, after this uh, service, uh, they planned uh, great cities build great cities but after the river saraswati dried out they moved towards uh, the ganges uh, uh, ganges uh, river and uh, for example kashi they did not care to build um such great planned cities uh for example my dad uh he was uh he is from uh, nade vanaras uh, and he t- uh, told me this question and i thought it would be great to ask it very good question it's an interesting question so if you see um if you look at the time period of the the so called harappan era the harappan phase of india civilization you find that you had this massive urbanized civilization in the western region of india the so called region of the seven rivers saptasindhu region where you had the great cities of harappa mohenjodaro kalibangan uh, rakigari and so many more and even the small towns were very well planned and their multi storied buildings it was a clear sign of a very advanced technologically advanced urban civilization and like you rightly mentioned then there was climate change the great river dried out and then there was a gradual migration of the people from this region eastwards into the ganga plain the yamuna plain and the in the other river valleys of, of within the indian subcontinent india is essentially a river valley civilization it's always been settled around in river valleys so there were many major rivers in other parts of india eastwards so that's where they went now if you look at the archaeological record from the time you find that at the same time you had other people who lived in eastern parts of india contemporaneous to the harappan people but they the, in that region the uh, the urbanization was not is not visible to that extent so you don't find multi storied buildings from 5000 years ago in the in the ganga valley the yamuna valley for instance that that's what we find maybe uh, maybe there was erosion maybe the archaeological uh, research has not been done properly but we don't find it thus far so what happened is that the migration happened from westwards western india into central india eastern india and these populations they assimilated they mixed intermixed and elements of whatever practices the westerners had mingled with the practices of the easterners and later on you had great cities that came up even in other parts of india later on so there was a phase in which there was this period of migration period of flux and period of less development and then again you find development of big empires big cities all across india look at the ancient city of patliputra which is about 5 2500 years old 
a great metropolitan city. And even if you look at the city of Kashi, Varanasi, Banaras, you find that the oldest uh, archaeological evidence that you find in the city is about eight, 9,000 years old. And nobody has done any proper archaeological excavation there. I dare say that if archaeologists were to do their work and excavate the, the, the relevant parts of the city, they may find urban structures, big structures even there, you know, deep, deep hidden in the soil. So the thing is, we have excavated or studied less than 2% of the Indian subcontinent from an archaeological perspective. And that's why there are so many gaps in our understanding of our ancient history. But uh, that's what I can offer you in brief. It's a very interesting question that you've asked me. And I would encourage you to study further. Very interesting uh, history that we have, right? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for answering my question. Uh, huge fan of yours. Uh, we listen to your uh, broadcasts every day. And yeah, uh, I better be heading out now. Thank you so much. Very nice to meet you and all the best. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Let me, I think we have time for, uh, let me take two more people in. One, two more guests whom shall i bring in let's bring in mr let's bring in mr neil hello good evening sir good evening how are you doing i'm fine sir sir i wanted to ask uh, this is my opinion but uh doesn't reading too much books about different personalities destroy our own critical thinking ability so, for mm -hmm. example, thousand years before today, there were not many books, but still there were many great thinkers. Like, for example, Chanakya also, he might have uh, might not have read many books to uh, write Earth Shastra. So, sir, what's your opinion about this? Okay, very good question. So, if you read too much, you may get too much, too much, too much data in your head, and you will not be able to develop your own personality. That is the perspective you are offering here. So I and, and what you're saying is that uh, we did not have a lot of books in the past and we have too many today. So I would offer you a different perspective. A thousand years before today, we had a large number of great universities across the country. And each of these universities had a huge library. You had libraries all across the country. And all of these universities were raised to the ground by the Turks and all the libraries were burned. It is well known, it is recorded by observers that the great library in Nalanda burned for months. It burned for yes. months. So imagine the number of books we had there. And in a university library, you have books on all topics. You have books on the sciences, on astronomy, on mathematics, on philosophy, on culture, on spirituality, on history, historical records for thousands of, of that um, went back thousands of years back into India's past. And that is just one library. We had so many universities. Nalanda, Takshashila, Tilhara, Vikramshila, Udantapuri, Shardapit, and so on and so forth. So I think India was the land of learning. You had millions of books all across the length and the breadth of the country. All right. So historically, we have had books and people were reading books. I would say that if you ingest, let's say you're con consuming data by reading books and you read, let's say, 100 books in, in two years or three years, it's going to give you different perspectives. It's going to broaden your horizons and give you different kinds of data and different kinds of knowledge. Now, it's up to you what you do with the knowledge. You can choose to believe some of the knowledge. You may choose to reject some of the knowledge. You may 
allow some of this knowledge to shape a certain kind of world view and it is all it all depends on you so you are the final arbiter of what you do with the knowledge that you may choose to in, to to consume so i would say from my perspective this is my personal perspective it, you don't have to agree with it it's perfectly fine my perspective is that if you read more if you gain more knowledge either by reading books or or watching documentaries or or listening to podcasts or, or whichever way works for you if you expose yourself to more information to more perspectives it kind of broadens your horizons and gives you a better perspective of the world and then you can draw your own own conclusions it will not destroy your personality i don't think so uh, uh, sir of course factual documentaries that we have to listen but i am talking about self help books like how to cure depression oh. what this that kind of thing you know so okay i was I, not aware that you are talking about self help books and sir reading autobiographies of people how they overcame obstacles in their life i am talking about that sense but i totally un- understand what you are saying right right so that's what i can say it's all about perspectives of course so these days you have all kinds of opinions that are being uh, marketed as knowledge so that is always a problem self help is has become a big industry for some reason uh, so it's up to you whether you want to consume that i think eventually you will if you read enough self help books you will start understanding that all of this is also marketing and much of it is actually incorrect so it, you have to trust your own wisdom and and judgment that's what that's what i would say yes thank you sir nice to meet you thank you very much bye thank you okay let's bring in um let's bring in charmi good evening good day good evening how are you sir um I'm good how are you doing so, uh so my i'll just straight away come to the question so sure. sir like we know now that uh, the aryan invasion theory is is false and uh, and uh, by by various sources it's been proven that uh, um it's rather india uh, out of india theories is a lot more valid uh, but when you talk to uh, the south indian people they are very good friend of mine and they are very good people but they still tell that like no that uh, the aryan invasion theory proving wrong is actually propaganda and yes. so how do you deal with that kind of mindset and there are lots of prominent um, uh, people who still are not accepting this and like i mean they i mean uh, uh, how do i say uh, the breaking india force is still kind of like you know uh, trying to prove uh, it's it's a wrong theory so yes how how do we deal with it right so the point you have raised is is absolutely correct very valid and i would say that this attitude is mostly prevalent in tamil nadu and kerala yes. more than other south indian states if you look absolutely. at karnataka andhra pradesh you, you don't see this attitude at all so it's correct. only in a couple of regions which you which you like you said and you, what you find is that see i don't blame these people for the beliefs they hold these are all nice people i know so many of them and the thing is that today what we have is that the education system has not doesn't give us the ability to to dis, of discernment what is right what is wrong how do you reach the right conclusions it doesn't teach you yeah. how to do this the education system simply tells you that trust that obey authority and believe whatever your teacher says so today that has been replaced by all these authors and all these propagandists who go on uh, the media if you look at the tamil media if you look at the tamil uh, political ecosystem they are all very much anti north india and they are very much tamil supremacist and they it is it is in their benefit in, in 
it helps the politicians if they keep this Aryan invasion theory alive because it creates a, a, a sense of victimhood that we have been oppressed and then the politicians can claim that we politicians are going to help you and we're going to save you from this oppression we're going to uplift you yeah so politics it's all, it's all based on creating divisions fractions and all those things so that's why the politicians have kept this theory alive the politicians have all the money and that's why the media also does that because they are bought by the politicians and the academics and all that and of course like you mentioned there are these breaking india forces who want to keep these theories alive to create these divisions within the rest of indian society they will say that the tribals are the real uh, dravidians of india and the fair skinned people are the aryans and all the nonsense so it is all a battle of perception the the, the factual data has nothing to do with all these theories that are being put out and the narratives that are being peddled yeah. so what needs to do is if you want to combat this we have to reform the education system and give the young kids the ability of of discernment how to judge what is right and what is wrong how to recognize false news fake news from real news and all those things you know so that is unfortunately it's going to be a long long haul because we have not even taken the first steps towards that yeah. in the meanwhile what we can do is we can keep disseminating what the real facts are based on scientific evidence that's all we can do but thank you for the question very good question thank you sir and, and sir one request uh, you should try yeah. to do some live stream sometimes uh, a different time because in australia it's already like you know uh, too late or rather too early morning so it's it's where are you, nice you located uh, australia you're in australia okay so <laughs> i will i will see how that works my my main audience is in india unfortunately so you know it's always going to be inconvenience for some people here and there but uh, hopefully you can watch a replay of the live stream if that works sometimes possible. sometimes i'm just saying yeah. not all the time but sometimes all right sure. all right Thank let's you. keep in mind thank you nice to meet you bye okay let's bring in one final person for today and who's going to be the lucky lucky person let me see Let's bring in Kia. Hello. Good evening. Namaste. Uh so so okay I have uh, I have I have a lot of points to make. So it's basically I'm just going to talk about the status of women and and all of that uh, things related to that. And so firstly I think I'd like to start by uh by like starting I'm I'm going to start with sex education. So sex education is it's not imparted to kids and uh, the thing is that uh, you know i i've been kind of reading all of this stuff and the thing that the constitution is egalitarian the constitution does not discriminate and the constitution is actually it's more liberal towards women as compared to men but you know the source of all of this uh, I, i would say discrimination i think it kind of has something to do with the sexual progressiveness of the society and you know no one no one talks about these things and no one wants to talk about these things because you know they're considered taboos in long time and there's so much there's so much blatant sexualization that kind of disgusts me i used to watch this yo yo honey singh person and um, in one of his videos you know he's just sitting on his chair he he's fully clothed and he's wearing all of these clothes and you know there's just there's just women around him wearing scanty clothes and i mean all of that and and interestingly interestingly in india india was i have studied about it india was pretty progressive you know kama sutra and uh, we have obviously the temples of khajaro and all of that and the thing is that this modesty 
kind of comes from monotheistic religions christianity does yeah. you know great mm-hmm. emphasis on virginity and all of that and covering up is i think it's you know greatly islam and all of that so how do we change this perspective of the society and, and women get a lot of rape threats women get a lot of rape threats you know whenever they mention their points or something like that there's always so much citation of sexual violence i don't think so much of discrimination happening on um i would say okay that that's it okay okay you bring up uh, an interesting perspective so what you are saying is right india's indian society has regressed a lot and i would say that if you want to understand the source of this regression you have to look at the history of the past 1000 years when foreign cultures were imposed upon india when those uh, narratives those world views became the dominating and uh, ruling world views in india and the constitution like you said ha- has a certain uh, slant and all that but if you look at the history of india like you mentioned it has been a very different kind of history if you look at the indigenous original culture of india if you look at the carvings that we find in history men women you can see there was no emphasis on covering up there was no need to be f- to feel ashamed for showing uh, various body parts or whatever if you look at the temples in kajuraho if you look at the various carvings of gods goddesses ordinary people in caves and temples across india you find that india has always been a very egalitarian liberal society there was no uh, sense of fake modesty of covering up and all that a very open society and women had no need to cover up there was no uh, sense of fear if you do that and all that and and i would say that the best representation of what indian society would have been like a thousand years ago is what you can see in southeast asia in places like thailand in in uh, places like cambodia which still retain a significant amount of elements of indian culture and you can see there that there is no emphasis on covering up and fake modesty and and all that right so that's what you see now what's happened is the past 1000 years of 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 uh, destruction of indian society of the foundation of the frameworks of indian society and that's why we are left with where we are today now what needs to happen is we need to remove all the foreign elements from our society especially the negative ones but not overnight it's not going to happen overnight it's going to happen if india is allowed to uh, to evolve again properly it's going to happen over the next 100 or 200 years it's a long term project it's not going to happen overnight but what we can start with is by changing the constitution and the laws and and uh, making it more i would say right now the constitution claims to be liberal and egalitarian and progressive but there are lots of problems in the constitution and the laws also and the attitudes of the judiciary and all towards things and the government governance mechanism overall so this is something that has happened in india over a period of 1000 years so to undo this will also take some time so that's what i can say but i agree with the point you make can i please just uh, add an add an like one more question so uh, only because... one question per person unfortunately only one i have to treat everybody equally so thank you all right thank you very much for the question thank you nice meeting you bye okay i think i've uh, shall i take one last person let's take one last person let's bring in mr udit hello yes, sir. hello sir can you hear me sir i can hear you yes sir i have a question related to russia sir in in the current news we received a news that russia's in geopolitics this is a question from geopolitics sir yeah we received the news that uh, the population has dropped by uh, about a million and the population which is left only 40% is 
in the working force like who are able to work or something sir in that they're saying that now that uh, russia is planning to invade ukraine take parts and bring ussr back sir does that have any relation with the population drop sir uh i think the geopolitical policies and ambitions of uh, the russian uh, ruling class essentially mr putin have nothing to do with the population drop or anything thing the population uh, drop and the and the aging of the population or, or the uh, whatever you're seeing over there that is a long term phenomenon it happens on on a decade by decade level the geopolitical situation that you are witnessing in ukraine is in europe all that has to do with the posturing of nato uh, it has to do with the uh, emerging uh, cooperation between russia and china it has something to do with the fact that uh, there is this uh, winter olympics that's going to happen very soon in china yes. so the chinese and the russians are cooperating to some extent so the geopolitical considerations have nothing to do with the population demographics and whatever is happening on that front geopolitical considerations are short term i mean you can see the effects right now the population shifts will be seen over a matter of decades so that yes. can be something in the background but the what's happening in ukraine right now would not have anything to do with the population shift in russia okay sir thank you sir that that's all my that's all thank you so much thanks for giving me a chance nice to meet and you and hey you all so thank you thank you thank you thank you bye all right my friends i think uh, we are at the end of today's session my apologies to those of you who are still waiting uh, maybe next time so this brings us to the end of today's session very interesting session very interesting to very nice to interact with you all and meet you all and we'll keep doing this once or twice a month these face to face sessions so thank you so much wonderful taking the questions and i will see you in the next episode thank you bye